is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is... Megan Bojarski. And in this episode, we will be covering one of the most controversial films in Disney's history, Song of the South. In part because it's incredibly difficult to watch, both because of the subject matter and its lack of availability, and in part because of its extremely layered legacy, it has sort of taken on this mythic status as a cherished film that is also slandered by social justice warriors. However, the vast majority of the talking points surrounding the film by those who do praise it are actually just not true. Just a clear reminder that, like, for a topic as this that has had so much written about it over the course of its entire history since it came out in 1946, yeah, this episode alone is not going to attempt to fully dissect the film or all of the legacies of it. There's a lot of very interesting work by both academics on in terms of theory and you know nostalgia and how we process history through culture, all the way to you know just the general memories of people who saw it as kids and kind of hold on to the nostalgic memories of it. Uh, We're recording this the same week that Splash Mountain has officially closed in Disneyland in California. Uh, So there's there's a lot to talk about with this, but we're going to do our best to cover the things that we feel were important to talk about in as much depth as we can. We'll be citing sources as much as we can as we go, as well as even having more of them in the show notes than usual. And so if you are interested in following up on this discussion, there's certainly no lack of things to read or digest or help you process actually watching the movie if you choose to do so, or giving you a better impression of what the movie is if you choose to skip it. And we will be giving a plot synopsis of this, again, because it's one that is not legally available to most people in the world uh, for the past you know 20 plus years. And so we'll be doing that sort of at the top to try to give an understanding as we talk about it, to give a working knowledge of what actually happens in this movie. So before we dive right into that plot synopsis, just a brief disclaimer and trigger warning. This episode will include discussions of racism, slavery, Jim Crow, white supremacy, and more. We also want to openly acknowledge that this is not necessarily an easy topic for us to talk about or for many of you to listen to. We have debated several times the merits of even including Song of the South and have put considerable time and effort into making sure that we handle the topic as respectfully as possible. We believe that including it in this project can shine a light on something that Disney has done its best to hide for almost 40 years. However, we acknowledge that we are limited in our abilities to understand and discuss the topic, and we apologize in advance for any errors that we may make. And we are as aware of our blind spots as we can be, but they will be, in fact, blind spots. We're even going to limit our use of 
words that are regularly used in academic literature because when brought into pop literature, they are just racial slurs being regurgitated. So we're going to do our best to avoid calling out that language specifically unless it's like a direct quote from somebody and it feels important to talk about. But we're, we're going to limit our use of it because one, we're not comfortable saying it. We figure most people not comfortable hearing it. And so again, we want to make this as try to walk that line between not censoring or holding back on anything, but not necessarily overusing words that we have no business saying ourselves. And so with that said, you know, the brief plot synopsis of Song of the South, it is set on a plantation in Georgia, not too far from Atlanta during Reconstruction, so post-Civil War. We will talk about the time period of this and those complications. It is technically set post-Civil War during Reconstruction. It stars Bobby Driscoll as Johnny, who is seven years old, and he's excited about a vacation at his grandmother's Georgia plantation with his parents. He learns that his father is leaving, his parents are getting a divorce, so he sneaks away from the plantation and runs into a sort of legendary figure in that area, Uncle Remus. And uh, Uncle Remus is telling stories to the other Black people on the plantation who are sharecroppers. Because uh, again, this is technically post-Civil War, although the movie doesn't call that out intrinsically. Uncle Remus is telling Br'er Rabbit stories. Johnny sort of listens in. And the story, the first story is Br'er Rabbit earns a dollar a minute. And in the story, he attempts to run away from home, only to change his mind after running into Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear. Johnny sort of takes the advice from the story, and Uncle Remus takes him back to the plantation house. Johnny makes a friend, Toby, who's a young black boy who also lives on the plantation, and Ginny, who is a poor white girl. Ginny has two older brothers, and they are basically bullies to Johnny, Toby, and Ginny. There's an incident with a puppy. Again, Uncle Remus tells a story, sort of admonish the brothers. Johnny learns how to be clever and trick the bullies. And then there's like like a third story where it's Johnny's birthday and he goes to get Ginny to bring her to the party. Her older brothers push her in a mud puddle and ruin her dress. Johnny begins fighting. Uncle Remus intervenes and tells him the story. Johnny's mom becomes angry because he misses his birthday party and blames she blames Uncle Remus. Uncle Remus goes to leave for Atlanta. Johnny runs to intercept him, but is attacked by a bull and uh, injured. After trying to take a shortcut through a grass, a grassy field, Johnny basically is lying in bed close to death. His father returns, and that does nothing for him. He calls out for Uncle Remus. His grandmother brings him in. Uncle Remus tells a bear rabbit story, and the boy lives. And then it sort of ends. The three young kids uh, and the puppy sort of happily playing in the plantation. Uncle Remus is shocked when Br'er Rabbit and some of the other characters from the story appear in front of them and interact with the kids. Uncle Remus joins them, and together they all walk into the sunset, whether intentional or not, the perfect picture of racial harmony at the end of this movie, and which is a thing people hold on to, but I think there's a lot of other stuff to unpack. So pausing there for a second, this was my second time seeing this movie. The first one was in college when illegally or extra-legally sharing of movies became techno technologically possible. This was like, oh, we could actually watch Song of the South, and I had only known it personally from the first volume of the Disney sing-along tapes in which the zippity-doo-dah zippity sequence 
was part of it. So that that's, that was the only part of the movie I'd actually seen before. And so, like, I'd never seen Br'er Rabbit or Br'er Fox or Br'er Bear because they're not in that sequence outside of Splash Mountain when I went to Disney World as a kid. So, like, I had sort of limited exposure to Song of the South until I saw it that that first time. And my overall reaction was like, wow, that is both racist and kind of boring. And watching it this time, my opinion didn't really change that much to sort of give you a preview of our our wrap up here. But I think being an older, more educated, more culturally aware person, you know, my biggest takeaway here, perhaps, is that, you know, we're kind of going to unpack the Uncle Remus of it all and the origin of, of how these stories got to Disney in a minute. But even outside of some of that context, if you just take the film by itself, it's really damning both the plantation setting and then Uncle Remus telling his stories basically to motivate and help a white kid's story. Like, like if these are, if we take these as black folklore, it's co-opting them to serve a white person's story. And that, that in and of itself is pretty damning, I think, of, of this movie overall. And I think says a lot about whether you want to call it intentional you know, intentional views, or you want to call it sort of an unintentional situation, you could, it was either complete thoughtlessness or actual co-oping that sort of got us to this point with this being the story of this movie. And I think that, you know, we'll sort of talk about it a little bit later, I think about maybe separating the animation from the live action. But I think in this case, when you see the whole package together, and you see that the animated segments are sort of in service of Johnny and not of Uncle Remus or, you know, Johnny's friend Toby, who is the young black boy that he's he's friends with. Like those characters are all supporting Johnny's story. And I think that makes it an even just like that that to me, like that's the thing that actually sinks the whole thing in terms of being able to redeem any part of this. As we'll discuss more about the conception and the production. What we'll be seeing a lot of is that this was not necessarily a film that was made and everyone thought it was good, great, and wonderful until the modern day. There were a lot of warning signs early on, and that's been something that's been really interesting to find out more about. My experience with this movie is very unusual. Those of you who have been listening to us for a while will know that I am very Disney illiterate. I did not have much of a connection with it as a child. However, I remember this movie. I actually think that I watched it either in kindergarten or first grade. I couldn't track down any like specific knowledge about that, but I remember the Tar Baby sequence as being something that I specifically have seen multiple times. So where you, I think, really got Disney's presentation of it, which was, here is the song with nothing else, and then mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of that like mythical, like, lost stories of Disney Disney vibe. This was actually given to me as a child as essentially a teaching method, which functionally put me and my fellow classmates, most of whom were also white students, in the place of Johnny, getting to learn the lessons of African and African-American folklore without having to really respect the culture or allow them their own place within it. So I had this very interesting setup. I I am from the South, where this was just presented as a fun movie set in Georgia, which is very interesting given the, the very complicated legacy. 
where you'll see that even even from the get-go, even in the South, there were many questionable elements of this movie that certainly were around and talked about from the very beginning. For me, growing up in the Northeast, I think I've mentioned this perhaps on previous podcasts, but like it's such a different cultural experience. Like this was just not not a thing that was necessarily thought of in the same way. Like I certainly grew up knowing about Gone with the Wind and have seen that movie in whole once and in part on TNT many, many times. But it, it wasn't spoken about in the same thing. It wasn't like, a, oh, like we have to show our kids this movie because it's about our culture or our way of life or what you know, however you want to frame it being from the South. But at least in my world, this was not one that, you know, outside of Zippity Doodah, this was not a a talked about movie. Like I I don't even know if I knew what movie it was from until you know, much, much later. To be fair, I don't remember every detail of my childhood exposure to it, but I know there was some. My adult exposure to it was far more through the Alabama song that talks about Song of the South. You know, there are some really great and some really questionable things going on with that as well. But it was just really kind of an interesting situation because I remember Song of the South better than I remembered Snow White. And that's definitely not what you would expect from Disney classics and what should stand the test of time. And certainly not someone I would expect from, you know, a 90s kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because this movie technically wasn't really available during your childhood. That must have been a, a, a pretty old copy. That's a good point. To be fair, Snow White might also have been in the vault at the time. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But it was definitely interesting because I remember Sleeping Beauty and I remember this. And then I don't really remember Disney movies until my teenage years, which is definitely an odd kind of way to absorb Disney culture. And then so kind of moving in, you know, I alluded to Gone with the Wind earlier, but Gone with the Wind was, I mean, it's really hard to undersell how big of a deal Gone with the Wind was in 1939. And that prompted Walt Disney to buy the rights to Joel Chandler Harris's books, kind of hoping like this, this was meant to be a cash in movie on like to cash in on the success of Gone with the Wind. But obviously the war happened in between. And so this movie doesn't come out until seven years after Gone with the Wind. And as we'll kind of talk about a little bit later, everything had changed in between. Or maybe not everything, but enough had changed to seriously alter the reactions to this movie. Uh, So Megan, I I know you did some research on Harris himself and sort of his his background and sort of the, the background of these Uncle Remus stories that are the source material for Song of the South. So one of the things that I think is really going to be kind of hammered home throughout this podcast is that Song of the South was always controversial. And that's in part because the Uncle Remus stories, as supposedly written by Joel Chandler Harris, were extremely controversial. So essentially, the story as we understand it is that Harris was a white man, he was pro-Confederacy from Georgia, and he spent many of his, many years of his youth on a plantation. And so basically when he wasn't kind of learning how to be a journalist and a newsman, he spent a lot of time in the slave quarters at the plantation, listening to what he has described at least as traditional African folk tales. What he did with these was basically divorce them from the people who told them, 
and tell them in whatever ways he wanted for his profit alone. There have been some arguments that essentially he did a wonderful good thing, that he was very fond of the enslaved peoples that he was associated with, and there have been argues that what he did helped to preserve a lot of this folklore. That's complicated, but at a minimum, what was very obviously not complicated was he took these stories that were not his own stories, he wrote them in essentially some form of linguistic blackface where he was able to write them using his understanding of African-American dialects, and he was able to present them to the world in as many forms as he wanted for his profit and his profit only. The people who told him these stories never got any money from his books and certainly didn't get any money when Disney bought the rights. There's certainly some controversy even more to be had with the concept of buying these rights. When we talk about Disney, a lot of times they didn't necessarily have to buy the rights because it was folk stories and these ideas that had been passed through civilizations. But Disney has kind of claimed ownership over them. And now we've gotten to the stage where Disney has really claimed ownership over entire folklore traditions that were not even spoken with the people who created the folklore. So there was a lot of controversy about these stories to begin with, but Disney bought them because he said that he had kind of this familiarity and fondness for them from his childhood. He specifically said, quote, from the time I began making animated features, I've had the Uncle Remus tales definitely in my production plans. It is their timeless and living appeal, their magnificent pictorial quality, their rich and tolerant humor, their homely philosophy and cheerfulness, which made the Remus legends the top choice for our first production with flesh and blood players. Gotta love the timeless appeal of the most hidden, hard to find Disney movie of all time. Well, not always right about everything. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and again, we're not, we are certainly not going to get to the bottom of the the Joel Chandler Harris thing at all. And I think, you know, I see in, in the notes that you made, Megan, you have the word written in quotes. And I think those quotes are doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence, which it is, it seems like it's actually debated and no one really knows for sure. Or at the very least, there isn't necessarily a 100% codified point of view. I do think it's worth pointing out that Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, among other novels, accused Harris of, quote, stealing a good part of my heritage in an essay that she wrote titled Uncle Remus, No Friend of Mine. I think that alone is enough to give sort of an example. But there are people who do say that Harris, you know, did a somewhat of a, of a net positive in terms of actually getting these stories down on paper. But again, that's certainly up for debate, and it, it's not a topic that seems necessarily settled uh, even to this day. So saying controversial, I think on that note is certainly accurate. There are some things that were always controversial about Song of the South that to me seem pretty cut and dry at this point. So, you know, once talks began with Harris's estate in 1939, Disney was given the green light to start production on Song of the South in 1944. And that's when Southern-born screenwriter Dalton S. Raymond joined the project to work on the script. Megan, as you put it in our notes, the first of many red flags go up. So Dalton S. Raymond completed a 51-page outline, which was then submitted to the Hayes office. 
We had mentioned the Hayes Code at least on one of our previous episodes. Well worth looking up. But basically, the Hayes Production Office had to sign off on movies. They were a censorship board, uh, mostly concerned about sex and whether or not criminals got away with their crimes. But the in this case, the Hayes Office declared that certain words and phrases uh, were deemed insensitive and to be removed from the treatment. And if you can sort of just imagine what those words and phrases might be for a censorship board probably made up entirely of white people in the 1940s to say was too much. I mean, again, the first of many red flags. After this, Disney brought in writer and performer Clarence Muse, who was the first African-American actor to appear in a starring role in 1929's Hearts and Dixie, to sort of consult on the script. That did not last long because Raymond refused to rework the Black characters into anything other than stereotypes. And so Muse left the project, and he also reached out to various Black publications to criticize the work. It's the kind of thing where some people who disagree with him accuse him of being biased because he wanted to play the part of Uncle Remus that ultimately went to James Basket. But, you know, we will also note that when the NAACP and the American Council on Race Relations requested access to the treatment to give their feedback, uh, they were denied. And so, again, maybe the second of many red flags go up. And so then Disney brings in another writer. So this is just red flag after red flag. For those who want the the real play-by-play slashfilm.com put out an excellent article just last year called the song of the south controversies explained which deals with a lot of this where we can see just how it went from bad to worse like ryan was saying they had already brought in one person who tried to change things and it didn't help so disney had this wonderful idea disney who did not really understand how the world worked but really hated communists and thought that he had the world figured out, decided to bring in Maurice Rapp, who was a Jewish left-wing speaker, who essentially said, why on earth would I work on this project? Who was very concerned that the film would lean into Uncle Tom's stereotypes, which it does. And Disney supposedly told him, that's exactly why I want you to work on it, because I know that you don't think I should make the movie. You're against Uncle Tomism, and you're a radical, which I feel like if you've already had multiple people tell you, don't make this movie, going, but what would you do in the movie is probably not the best way. And it gets even worse in that rap only lasted seven weeks before a fight with Raymond saw him removed from the project. There's some discussion about how willing he was or how willing he wasn't in being removed. But the long and short of it is everyone they brought in even those who were not part of the African-American community said that there were problems and were kicked out for discussing those problems. This is just one brief moment where I want to cut in and say, as we've said, there have been some discussions, including Keith Cartwright in Reading Africa into American Literature, who have kind of discussed the idea that Harris could be a major like, authorial force towards keeping African-American folklore alive. And whether you believe it with Harris or not, I don't think Disney is the right one. There's some great articles that show other movies that do a better job with this. So I will direct you all to Shadow and Act's article, 11 Movies That Prove Black Mythology Has Always Existed, for some films that honor the folklore and mythology of Africa and African-Americans without being something that literally 
kicked off to tell them that they were making a racist movie. I think it's fair, but maybe generous to call Harris controversial. And I think it's fair and more than generous to call Song of the South controversial (laughs) in the sense that every step of the way, and I think that's the thing, you know, when I first listened to Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This season about Song of the South, that really sort of opened my eyes and helped me to understand the history around the movie and its making and its release, you know, as we're going to kind of recap here. One of the things that people say today when defending Song of the South is like, oh, it was a product of its time. But as we're going to do our best to demonstrate, no, people at the t- <laughs> right, people at the time was like, we're like, this is too, this is a throwback. This is way, this is regressive compared to where we are now. And I think while Disney was primarily concerned with trying to avoid controversy and make it this as a benign a thing as you as they could, I still don't think that. I think the politics kind of come through inherently in the project. Like I said, out of will or ignorance or some combination of both between various people working on this thing, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that this was, again, a throwback is a, is a nice way of saying it was viewed as pretty racist when it came out in 1946. As I mentioned earlier, this whole project really owes a debt to Gone with the Wind. There's a lot of, there's a lot of aesthetic similarities into, into the way that Georgia plantations are depicted in both. However, Gone with the Wind came out in 1939, and by the time Song of the South was released, it was further out of step with the post-World War II social values that had sort of come about in the preceding years in between. And I think part of the reason for Gone with the Wind's popularity was sort of the the fantasy of it all, uh, especially, you know, popularity of Gone with the Wind outside of the South, let's say, because in the South, I feel like the Lost Cause narrative is strong enough to sort of drive a, a love and nostalgia for that movie. But that movie was a nationwide hit. And I think part of it was sort of the fantasy element of like, we're living in a depression, like watching this lavish production about rich people falling in love did a lot more for the Gone with the Wind's popularity than maybe the actual historical narrative within itself. But that moment had certainly passed by the time that Song of the South came out. And again, this is basically a live action film. There's like three major segments with animation. So I would guess that there's less animation in this than there is in Reluctant Dragon overall in terms of percentage of its runtime. Like this is a longer movie, I think by about 20 minutes, but I think there's just less animation overall. And so that that sort of sets the stage for actually making the movie in 1944 as the movie is getting written. Disney's already getting feedback of, again, don't make this movie. You're going to just reenact dated stereotypes. And again, this is people in 1944 saying, well, your stereotypes are dated. You have no business making this movie. And so by the time we get to 1946, Disney had stopped production on all the features except Song of the South, Make Mine Music, Fun and Fancy Free, and So Dear to My Heart. They had cut 40% of the employees. And a month later, they brought back 108 just to finish Song of the South and Fun and Fancy Free. So again, we're in this era where you know, we're post-World War II, the government money presumably has basically dried up at this point or has been spent, and the Disney studio is back in trouble, and this is the movie that Walt thinks will turn everything around. And as we all know, once Walt thinks that he knows what's going on, he pours all of his money and attention into it and doesn't listen to anybody. I think we mentioned in our earlier episode talking about the strike that Walt outright said 
if someone tells me to do something, I am going to do the opposite just because I don't want you to tell me what to do. And I think that was very present in this situation where he was basically being begged by all sorts of people not to make this movie or not to make it the way he did. And he, he really just didn't listen to it. One of the most complicated legacies of this movie is specifically looking into the actors that were hired. For example, they had cast James Basket to play Uncle Remus, who had previously played one of the crows in Dumbo, which we have already said was not good in its own right. So despite the fact that he had been in some of the more regressive portrayals of race in earlier films, Disney explained to Basket's sister that he was, quote, the best actor I believe to have been discovered in years. According to some of the records and sources we've found, after this film, Disney actually kept in contact with him and fought for Basket to get an Academy Award for this performance. All of this kind of built up to Basket's death, after which his widow apparently wrote to Disney and told him that he had been, quote, a friend indeed, and certainly we have been in need. Kind of creating this portrayal that it wasn't necessarily a bad casting, but simply the fact that Disney really believed that James Basket was the best actor in the world. That seems to be cut down a little bit from the fact that he had commented to one of his colleagues that when he was casting the role of Toby, he had found potential trigger warning here, quote, a swell little piccaninny to play the character, which is a term that at best is a stereotype and at worst is a slur and was a slur in that time. This is not the time or place for us to sort of try to break down the psychology of Walt Disney or his views on race. We could certainly call him a complicated figure as a shorthand of saying it was messy. I think it is possible for someone like Disney to be very fond of an individual person like James Baskett and still hold views or use or use words that come across as very racist. You know, again, Disney is someone who grew up in the the turn of the century. I think we know from other people in our lives, some people don't update their mental dictionaries or points of view over time, even if they come to accept individual people that they know as existing beyond those stereotypes. And and again, that could be a generous reading of Disney. That's about as far as I feel like I can go in his favor in this case. But I do think that James Baskett gives a wonderful performance. I think that he is actually the only live action performance in this that is truly that's well, I mean, he's the only one that's on screen and good enough to actually be sort of engaging. And the film does become the film gets a lot more energy, at least when he's on screen. And so I, I do think that he gives a good performance. It's just that he's playing a character that is fundamentally a stereotype, whether he's a historical stereotype from minstrel shows and an Uncle Tom type or his own Uncle Remus type, as we'll probably talk about later. That's up to be debated. But I do think that for what it's worth, he's giving his all to that performance, whether or not the character is well written or not is a, is a second question beyond that. Song of the South also features uh, Hattie McDaniel who played Mammy in Gone with the Wind and won an Oscar for it, even though she was unable to attend the premiere because of segregation. Even that Oscar, not her winning, but just the whole thing around it is a little a little controversial if you dig into that story. 
But she only took this role because she won the Oscar for playing such a stereotype, wanted to push back on it. And her career basically dried up in part because she was caught between playing stereotypical characters where she would get criticism from the black community for playing those roles or not being able to get cast in any other roles. And so, you know, I think for both of these actors and a lot of other high profile black performers in this time period, it really was a choice between playing a stereotypical character or not working at all. And I think we think of major Hollywood names as having a certain amount of power over the creative process, but that was not the case for these black performers or many other black performers who were performing in movies produced by the white studios. We do not want to blame the actors who were playing these roles. While they often did what they could, Addie McDaniel is actually celebrated for adding a lot of depth to the role of Mammy in Gone with the Wind and adding this kind of sense that she knew what was going on and was kind of the smartest character in the room, even if she acted subservient. A lot of the time, the fact is, if the roles were out there, the actors needed to survive. And especially on a movie like this, where we have already seen multiple people try to push back against the regressive screenwriting and be eliminated from the project. I want to make it very clear that we are not kind of scorning the actors who needed to do what they needed to do to get by. There's a lot of complication about what roles were available and what roles caused social backlash, but that's kind of an important layer here with these two major figures who were both contributing to the stereotypes with these characters, but also doing everything they could to support Black actors and Black characters existing in major Hollywood productions. Yeah, it, it's a really fine line. But but again, I think when you sort of think about it and you put yourself in the mindset of those conditions existing, you can kind of see how they got to where they got. Because again, I do think that Disney making their first essential live action movie and the the uh, not the lead character, because he's not the protagonist, which is its own problem, but the most prominent role in the movie in terms of a marketing thing, especially was a black man. And that that is a huge step forward in some ways, but it's a shame that that step forward comes with literally 10 more steps backwards. So it's like you're doing, you know, the, the headline is like, you know, Disney's producing a movie with a black lead. And then the sub headline is, but all the black characters in the movie are egregious stereotypes that are even regressive as we're looking at them in 1946. The other part of this movie, um, which we'll again revisit as part of its legacy, because it is one of the biggest lasting legacies, is the song zippity doo which again, as I said, was the part of this movie I was most familiar with growing up as a kid due to its prominence, both in the Disney sing-alongs as well, as in just like showing up anywhere Disney related. Along with When You Wish Upon a Star, it's probably one of the two most prominent Disney songs across their history. There's been a lot of research, I think, especially in the last 10 to 20 years about the origins of Zippity Judah, and it seems to be heavily based on a minstrel song and stereotypical character called, and I'm using this in quotes, Zip Coon. That's how we get to Zippity Judah. And that stereotype is the kind of 
black stereotype, who was a man who thought he was smarter than white people or other people, but then pr proven to be kind of full of, full of himself and foolish and is shown to be just as sort of work avoidant and lazy as other versions of that stereotype. This song and the melody and everything kind of has ties into Turkey and the Straw and some other songs associated with minstrel shows. There's a, a whole conversation to be had around the connections between cartoon characters like Mickey Mouse and some of the ways that they were portrayed. You know, we talked about some of that a little bit in our Fantasia episode and its connections to the lost or banned racist Looney Tune shorts. But all of these stereotypes are kind of in the mix as, as part of this sort of early history of uh, American animation. And if you're interested in seeing kind of how so many of these things were built up together, one of the books that specifically looks into the origins of Zippity Doodah is Doodah, Stephen Foster, and the Rise of American Pop Culture by Ken Emerson. And so in light of all this, Megan had the excellent suggestion to sort of give some alternatives for people. These are like, I think there's only one of these that we're going to talk about that I have direct firsthand experience with so far because I have my own work to do to kind of expose myself to more of these. But we at least wanted to go through and quickly highlight other depictions of Black people and Black culture in the early half of the 20th century in and around Song of the South coming to production. One of the things that we really wanted to look into was the big myth of Song of the South and Gone with the Wind and so many other things, that these were a product of their times and that nobody knew any better. And that is something that we can pretty definitively explain is not true based on several kind of examinations of what was going on throughout those first few decades. We have a quote from George Gerbner that I thought really resonated that says, representation in the fictional world signifies social existence. Absence means symbolic annihilation. So the concept with this is that if you are in films and television, you see yourself as part of society. From our youngest ages, we are watching TV, we are watching movies, and we're learning what life is through those. And when a particular demographic is not in those fictional worlds, both they and those not part of their demographics learn the important message that they don't belong in that world. And that's something that is very obvious that comes up a lot in kind of the politics of representation, but is very important to think about when we talk about what is talked about and what isn't. So specifically, I consulted the chapter African Americans in Cinema from the book Moving Pictures in Introduction to Cinema by Russell Sharman and the Stacker article A History of Black Representation in Film by Alicia Williams-Noberto. When we look into this, both during and after World War II, Hollywood and the U.S. government were trying to show progressive they were racially. This is something that we have already talked about in this podcast with the South American films, but many other films were starting to show this concept that, especially as America as the anti-Nazi and America as a place where everyone could fight for one sense of freedom, they were really trying to build this idea that we were not a horribly racist society, that we did not have great levels of segregation and discrimination which we of course know is historically not true. That being said, 
what we can see is a rise in black representation in film, both by themselves and by white studios, that is really telling in how regressive Song of the South is compared to some of the real strides that had been made before it. In 1942, representatives from the local NAACP Bureau had met with executives from many different Hollywood studios and made an agreement to improve the portrayals of African Americans in film, to stop this reliance on stereotypes and to really add more nuance. But unfortunately, that really just didn't seem to be working with some of the films that we still know of today. Black people have been a part of the history of film since the very beginning, at least as far back as 1910, which is close enough to the very beginning. But I mean, most people don't watch movies made before 1930. So, you know, I think those first three or four decades of cinema there counts as the beginning. You know, but as far back as 1910, you had Peter and Bill Jones making comedy films. Uh, they were the first black people to make comedies. William D. Foster, also in 1910, was the first black man to form a film production company, which he called Photoplay. The Photoplay company produced The Railroad Porter in 1912, and as far as we know, it was the first film with an all-black cast. Uh, the first all-black talking musical released in 1929, and Hallelujah was a major studio hit that came out of that film. Oscar Micheaux is a very well-known example of an early Black director who sought to create portrayals of African Americans that would counter the racist propaganda put out by filmmakers like D.W. Griffith. The Homesteader was his first movie. Unfortunately, it is lost, but it is considered the first African American feature film. His 1920 film, Within Our Gates, used Black actors and portrayed African Americans as desiring education and being victims of racial violence. Lincoln Perry, better known as Step and Fetch It, uh, was a huge hit with white audience, especially. He did portray a very stereotypical character, but he was popular enough to be the first Black actor to earn a million dollars. Also well-known was Bill Bojangles Robinson, who was a talented tap dancer and who very much tried to escape roles like playing servants and chauffeurs and things. He broke a racial barrier by dancing with Shirley Temple in The Little Colonel, uh, which was the first of four films in which they appeared together and developed uh, their own sort of friendship. The Nicholas Brothers were a tap-dancing duo whose dance numbers often made movies hits with Black and white audiences. We'll talk about Stormy Weather in a little bit, but they're, they have an incredible number in that. Likewise, Lana Horn, who was a talented, beautiful actress and singer, she was the first African-American woman to be considered a sex symbol for both black and white audiences. She was certainly the first that was marketed that way. Paul Robinson was one of the first actors to portray a strong and defiant black man. And he sang about the tragedy and horrors of slavery in Showboat. And he was accomplished in many different areas of entertainment as well as political activism and academics. But these are certainly important names to know. And then some film examples, Cabin in the Sky in 1943 was the first musical with an all-black cast by a major studio. The crew was all white, but at least the on-screen cast was all black. Other studios followed suit, which is where we get careers for Sidney Poitier and Dorothy Dandridge, again, who were popular kind of crossover performers who were popular with both black and white audiences. Stormy Weather was a 1943 musical with an all-black cast. Daryl Zanuck was sort of a forward-thinking white studio guy who sought to showcase this emerging black talent 
Cab Calloway, Fats Waller, Bill Bojangles Robinson, uh, the Nicholas Brothers, and Lena Horne all appear in that movie. I've seen it twice, actually. I think it's it's very fun. You know, I can't really speak to the entire portrayal of Black people in the movie and the characterizations and all that, but I will say, at the very least, the musical numbers are absolutely stunning and incredible and well worth seeking out. The downside of the studios sort of trying to cash in on the quote-unquote race films, as they were called, is that they stole audience and stars from the more independent all-black productions. So they were taking black stars and, you know, using white people to make these movies, and that was sort of taking away from the talent pool from the black filmmakers trying to make their own movies with these same stars. We almost never talk about these very important, very early black starring films. The race films, in part, are not talked about because many of them were destroyed or at least neglected to the extent that they started to fall apart. However, that being said, what we can say is they existed, there were a lot of them, and they were very nuanced. They really wanted to talk about how slavery impacted the African diasporic people, how racism was still rampant throughout the world, how black men and women negotiated their roles in a, frankly, white supremacist society. We saw all of that going back to the very beginning of the 20th century. And even when the white studios were putting out films that took out some of the deeper themes, they still were showing black people as people to the extent that we can look at this and very clearly say, Song of the South was not like any other film from the 40s. It was not showing the same representation that any black person could expect to see in the 40s. There was a lot of progression. There were still many, many problems, and there still are many today. The world was a lot more progressive within representation than people want to believe, which really challenges that narrative that Song of the South was doing what everybody was doing at the time. Because the fact is, it was doing worse than movies 20 years beforehand. Yeah, and especially, again, I'll I'll talk about Stormy Weather a little bit more because it's one I have actually seen. But that movie is three years earlier than Song of the South. And for several reasons, I probably wouldn't show Song of the South to somebody who wasn't like very interested in the specific history of the things that we're talking about today. But Stormy Weather is a movie I have recommended to people and be like, look, it's a little bit dated because it's from 1943. But I think it's well intended. And I think the performances are well worth seeing. I have no but for Song of the South. It's not a movie I recommend to people because, again, I think... There are other problems with it besides being racist, but it's so regressive. It's trying to be so inoffensively racist that it, in some ways it makes it as bad as Birth of a Nation to me in terms of actually being able to sit down and watch it. And I think there are so many better options out there. And again, as we keep saying, the reason we keep hammering this home is because there are people who say, well, that's what, just, that's what it was like at the time. You know, or that's how people remember it being or, or whatever excuse they give. And, and those excuses just don't hold water when you actually look at the history of the film, uh, history of film in any meaningful way. Going off of that point, a quote that really stood out to me while we were researching this is by Cameron Bailey, who was the artistic director and co-head of the Toronto International Film Festival, who said, quote, One of the illuminating things about studying Hollywood history 
is that you realize that representations that seem problematic now were not fully accepted at that time. And that's something that we are definitely going to see with this production. As we've just said, the history of what was going on in cinema, whether you're talking black filmmakers or white studios, shows that there was a lot of movement forward in representation. When the film opened at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on November 12th, 1946, it was released in a spot where the lead actor could not even go to the premiere because of how segregated Atlanta was, to the extent that he was not able to go and be celebrated, they were there to watch the white people in the film with the black people as fully subservient characters. And that is something that was absolutely discussed as a failure of the release and a failure of the film altogether. I have to imagine that Walt was somehow involved in the decision. And, you know, on the surface, you're like, oh, this movie takes place near Atlanta. We should, we should open it in Atlanta. I didn't get a chance to look at where Gone with the Wind opened originally. And so I, on that level, I get it. But again, if Disney wanted to sort of take credit and be like, oh, we're doing this thing to like, we're, you know, putting black people in prominent roles on screen, but they're not allowed to actually come and see the movie when we're showing it for the first time to an audience. That is, it's barely a mixed message at that point in terms of what the priorities are for the studio and for the release of it. Disney was so insistent that he could do Gone with the Wind, but with animation and fun musical numbers, that he forgot, well, I, I put that very generously, that he forgot that racism existed in the world and specifically in Georgia and Atlanta in the 1940s, and specifically forgot about all of the progress that had been made since Gone with the Wind. There are definitely people who like, will point out like, oh, like, you know, nobody really boycotted Song of the South when it came out originally. And that is mostly true, if only because it was a box office failure and was deemed not a priority by the NAACP and other like groups. There were, there, they had bigger fish to fry at the time because this movie was assumed to sort of just like fade away into the background because it, it didn't do particularly well when it was released. One of the things that's really telling about the immediate reception is an open letter that was written to Disney that was published by the Atlanta Constitution that said, quote, What's gotten into you lately? Last night I saw your latest movie, Song of the South. For a fellow with your talents, I thought it was a bum job. This Uncle Tom musical hasn't got it. We felt embarrassed for you when we read that the colored actor who played Uncle Remus wasn't permitted to attend the gala opening. This is a time period where segregation and Jim Crow are definitely still going on in Georgia. And Georgia itself is publishing in a prominent newspaper a letter telling Disney, what are you doing with this not great movie with this racist release? It's just very telling that this was not the success and the accepted, beloved film that people really want to make it out to be with modern nostalgia. Absolutely. I mean, the problems sort of start, again, before the movie even comes out. But as the movie comes out, the NAAC, there were places where the NAACP picketed the movie. There just wasn't like a mass nationwide boycott of it because it wasn't worth their time. But they did release a statement from the executive secretary of the organization, Walter Francis, 
said that it, quote, perpetuates a dangerously glorified picture of slavery, making use of the beautiful Uncle Remus folklore. Song of the South, unfortunately, gives the impression of an idyllic master-slave relationship, which is a distortion of the facts. Now, Disney, of course, kind of responded to this and defended it as a, quote, monument to the Negro race and pointing out that it's set after the Civil War and therefore it could not be about slavery. However, when watching this movie, there is nothing that says at the beginning, like, that, that comes up where it's like, this is 1880, or this is 1875, or this is uh, 1844. Like, there's no place in the movie that gives you a sense of time. They're, like, the war isn't talked about as something that happened recently or in the past or secession. or There's no con- historical context in the movie other than the Victoria, high Victorian-style clothing worn by the white people. And if you were not an expert, like me, if you were not an expert in Victor- late Victorian clothing, there's no way to tell when this movie takes place. Again, you can debate all day long what, when this movie actually takes place. If you want to say it takes place after the Civil War, fine. But I think even the fact that that confusion even exists, I think, is very telling about the portrayal of especially the Black characters in the movie. They are technically free people who are able to get, able to go. Like, Uncle Remus is able to leave. He can go wherever he wants. But there's like a line in this movie where he's basically like, I kind of like it here and I kind of like the way that it used to be, if, if you don't mind me saying. And so it's even the defense of this movie as being like, oh, this is about free black people working on a plantation because they enjoy it a lot is the most you can say, which again is sort of like damning with, faint, with the faintest of, of praise in my mind. At best, this is about a period that grew out of slavery that is still extremely racist. Right. (laughs) And a lot of the themes in it, whether you want to count it as during the period of slavery or after, are still really pushing through that the white people are above the black people, that the black people are somehow dangerous. Specifically, what we see a lot going on throughout the movie is that Johnny's mom is repeatedly finding him getting in trouble and saying, hmm, could this be because my son is confused about what's going on in our family dynamics? No, let's blame all of the black people who are actually spending time with my son. One of the biggest things kind of in The plot of this film is that Johnny is extremely confused and distressed by the fact that his father is not around. His father is not around because he needs to be part of a controversial newspaper in Atlanta. That's another thing that's just not really explored. Mm -hmm. But anyone who actually spends time with Johnny and makes him feel like his opinions and feelings matter is openly shamed for doing so and is viewed as dangerous, as potentially harming Johnny or leading him astray from the proper path. So whether you want to call this during slavery or after, it still is really horrible in how it's presenting a lot of these characters and their dynamics. Perhaps ironically, everything that Uncle Remus tells him is in support of what Johnny's mom wants him to do and how he wants him to act. So it's it's almost like double because it's she blames Uncle Remus for Johnny misbehaving or, you know, not being at home or whatever. The kid doesn't want to be at home because he thinks it's basically a divorce movie. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Remus is the one who's like, no, like, you have to stay home. Like, this is where you're safe. This is where, you know, like, you know, basically tell him, like, your mom loves you. You can't run away from home. You're also, you're, you know, nine. 
And he's the one who gets blamed for it. And so it's a very bizarre movie watching it, I think, at, at any point. But you could argue that the characters that come off, the, that are the villains, I guess you could say, in the live action segments are the poor white kids that are picking on Johnny and and their sister and the young uh, black child that they're friends with. But like all of the black characters are written as being below the, the white characters. They are in some sort of servantile state, whether or not that is literalized by slavery or not, that relationship, those relationships in the movie are canonically ones of the black characters are always obeying what the white characters are telling them to do. Don't just take our word for it because we have sources from the time period showing that people felt this way when it came out. So for example, some of our quotes, the National Negro Congress declared that the film, quote, is an insult to the Negro people because it uses offensive dialect, it portrays the Negro as a low, inferior servant, it glorifies slavery. Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was a congressman from Harlem, said that the film was, quote, an insult to American minorities and everything that America as a whole stands for. And Richard B. Deere of the Afro-American slammed the movie for being, quote, as vicious a piece of propaganda for white supremacy as Hollywood ever produced. Long story short, everyone knew it was racist. It was just that some people thought it was nice racism, whereas others thought it was just as bad as anything that the Nazis were doing, just as bad as anything that had happened during or prior to the Civil War. I really like, not like because I agree, but I'm amused by this quote that you pulled from Herman Hill writing in the Pittsburgh Courier, who felt that Song of the South would, quote, prove of inestimable goodwill in the furthering of inter interracial relations and considered criticisms of the film to be, quote, unadulterated hogwash symptomatic of the unfortunate racial neuroses that seems to be gripping so many of our humorless brethren these days. And this man, who has probably been dead for many, many years, easily could have scripted that for Rush Limbaugh in the 90s. Like, it, it's one of those, like, some things never change. And that's that's the other point about this. Like, even the people who were sort of defending this movie as this picture of beautiful racial harmony are just as ill-willed as the, you know, anti-PC, anti-woke people that we've had for the past 30 years of, of my lifetime that I, I've been aware. And so the pro-Song of the South side of this feels like a broken record to be where again it's like they haven't been saying anything new this whole time it's just defending being basically defending saying it's not that bad or like ultimately it shows racial harmony and what that means to me as a white person is that it shows the kind of racial relations i want because i get to be in charge of everything and i hold all the power in those relationships and i don't have to be scared about things there's a lot of that built into defending song of the south from the beginning but again, I think that the criticisms are so blatantly damning. And again, watching the movie, it just reinforces all of that. Yeah, one of the things that I find really hilarious about that quote is, number one, this is the person who literally wrote out the sentence, I liked it, why can't people enjoy comedy anymore? Which is unfortunately a quote I hear all too often these days. And just put it through the thesaurus 17 times. I mean, it's... Very difficult to even just read this unadulterated hogwash symptomatic of da 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 our humorless brethren these days. It's so self-inflated to try to show I am 
a really smart person who can see the nuances. Like you said, it's saying the exact same things that we're hearing today that we were hearing in the 90s. It amounts to, why can't people just shut up and stay in their place and laugh at the racist jokes I make at Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah, I mean, look, this is going to show my age and cultural awareness from a young age in a very weird way. But I do feel like I could... Like, I feel like unfor- the phrase unfortunate racial neuroses is probably like a favorite of Pat Buchanan's circa like 1992. Like, you know, it, it's all the same stuff. It's the same people who are like, well, I have to boycott Target now because they've had a pride collection for the 10th year in a row. <laughs> I did not see that coming. And so it, it's it's the same broken record. And I think showing the linguistic commonalities in those arguments also helps to illustrate that intellectual bigotry has still remained intact this entire time. And they're not really defending Song of the South on the merits of saying it's a great movie. It's a movie that they just agree with. You know, one of the things that we'll see again with the idea that the reception to this has always kind of been the same is that I found a Time article that was specifically kind of responding to Song of the South that came out November 18th, 1946, that was just discussing kind of what movies were coming out in that time period that describes it in a way that I think is basically what people would say now at best, uh, which Mm -hmm. is technically the blending of two movie mediums is pure Disney wizardry. Short cut aside, this was not the first time that they blended live action and animation, but they seem to think it was. So sure. Going back into the quote, ideologically, The picture is certain to land its maker in hot water. They knew. Everyone knew. Disney knew. Everyone talking about the movie, both in its promotion and in its reception, knew. We we can't pretend that this was just a happy-go-lucky movie that came out when it did. Because the facts just aren't there. The fact is, you can say that it's really cool where there's animation both, you know, in front of and behind Uncle Remus and the kids. And yes, that's kind of cool. But that happened in the Three Caballeros first. So it wasn't an original here. And even if it was, let's talk about some of the later films that do that so that we don't have to talk about this movie that is at best not a great movie. I think that's a great point because we covered a lot of the innovation that was developed, especially for Three Caballeros in that episode. Whereas in this movie, sure, it may be advanced if you want to say that, like, oh, you know, they're they're shooting on sets and like the backgrounds are more detailed. Like, what? Certainly, it moved. They did new tricks because that's what Disney always does. They are always trying to innovate on the animation. They don't need to get special points over it for this. I think the animation's fine overall. Like this, like none of the animation is particularly great in terms of overall quality compared to everything else we've seen up to this point. Like there's nothing truly groundbreaking in any of the blended or fully animated segments. Yeah, so Song of the South basically does function as an entire survey of several of the main racial stereotypes that existed in United States pop culture, at least leading up to this time period. We're not going to go in depth on them. Uh, If you want to break down, there's several sources in the show notes for that. But it's not really our place to necessarily describe them in detail. And I think there's enough ways that we can talk about this movie without having to dig into those specific stereotypes. Because, again, that could be a whole separate episode of a different podcast, basically. 
But the stereotypes that are included in here, there's this great quote by uh, Jason Spurb, who wrote Disney's most notorious film, Race Convergence and the Hidden Histories of Song of the South, which is an excellent book. It's not it's not that long. I would highly recommend picking it up either from a library or on Kindle because it's a little bit expensive to get a, a physical copy, but the digital the ebook version was actually pretty affordable. But his quote about the stereotypes in this movie is that all three ultimately reinforce the vision of an illusory utopia where African Americans are perpetually helpful, passive, and non-threatening to the privileged whites who are the only ones to benefit from this way of life. I just think it says everything that you really need to know, that you really either have to be naive or just very accepting of the privileges of a white supremacist society to watch Song of the South and be like, ah, yes, the way life should be. And then one more thing that we just kind of want to point out in how this film kind of builds on these stereotypes and on these ideas, as we've already talked about, it's unclear whether the film was set during slavery or in Reconstruction. It was actually something that the Hayes Code enforced that it be set during Reconstruction, which tells you a lot about kind of what the meaning came down to with this. But essentially, by taking the film out of real history, it can both avoid the realities of slavery and Reconstruction and rewrite them with this new narrative. So everyone who wants to say that not watching Song of the South is rewriting history, it's actually the opposite. Song of the South itself is doing this rewriting. One of the things that's really important is that as we move further away from a period of history, we rely on public memory far more than we rely on historical truth. So what that means is both because truth is really hard to prove and because we learn from pop culture a lot more than we learn from our textbooks, we believe what we hear and what we see, and that builds history for us. This sort of movie is the kind that creates a reimagining of history that we have now grown up on. As I said, I saw this movie apparently multiple times as a child, which would then create the images of slavery or Reconstruction South in my mind before I ever learned what the Civil War was and what slavery was. It creates this idea that makes it that much harder to see the truth of these time periods and to see what structural elements from the period of slavery and what forms of racism still exist. This really builds on that myth that formerly enslaved peoples chose to stay at work on plantations rather than being forced to stay there by systemic creations, by laws, by social structures. And that makes it all the easier for us to completely distance ourselves from that time period. Rather than seeing slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement as this flowing line that we have not defeated all of the legacies of, we see it as this imaginary happy world where everyone lived together happily and peacefully, where Black people never threatened white people or their dominance in society, and where we don't have to confront the fact that there are still structural elements that were put in place during slavery or during early Reconstruction that are still there, that are still perpetuating racism within our own society. I think that's a great point. And I think it really shows the idea of 
putting a time period in a bubble and making it like, oh, this doesn't affect anything that came before. Like all all the stuff about black people winning civil rights didn't happen until the 60s is not true. Like it's all part of that same continuum. It, all, it is all part of one large story that has been going on for hundreds of years at this point, largely for worse. But part of what I find so insidious about the movie is its deliberate innocuous way it's presenting this time period or any time period for that matter whether it takes place during before the civil war or after the civil war or during the civil war it is just showing the sort of idealized version of the south and it doesn't confront any of of that like it's you know i feel like if you watch birth of a nation today which you don't need to it's very long and very racist it's easy to see that that is propaganda it's easy to be like oh that's a made-up thing whereas again because this is targeting I, I think what you said megan about this this movie is something that children would discover before they learn the context required to understand it makes it that much more dangerous in a way like i, I you know i don't want to overuse the word dangerous it's like how you can't use cartoon characters like joe camel to ever advertise cigarettes anymore because that's the thing that kids are drawn to and it, it's kind of that same thing where you're it's it's almost like indoctrinating kids when they're too young to understand what they're even supposed to know about this time period you know i think that it's so idealized in a way that it's just pleasant that it you know you really have to understand the context to even know really what you're watching. And I think that one of the things that's been increasingly clear to me as we've been watching these is that specifically in this period with the package films, we have essentially a series of animated shorts and some explanation for how they all get put together. Some of them make more sense than others, as we've talked about specifically with like the Three Caballeros versus Saludos Amigos. But essentially, with this movie, the animation is barely there. It only serves to further prop up the frame story, which is mm -hmm. white family learning how to love each other and being put back together by the various Black people who serve them faithfully for no other reason than that they should. Um, I think that you know, it, it takes this format that we've seen that says, oh, well, the animation is all that matters and the other stuff just holds it together. And that other stuff is the most dangerous part of the movie. But because these African folktales or supposedly African folktales are what are being called out are being shown as, you know, the preservation of their culture it allows you to say, oh, this is perfectly fine, this isn't racist at all, while taking in those really kind of insidious messages. And I think that's also a great transition into our segment on the legacy of Song of the South. So there's a quote from an article where Jason Sperb was interviewed about it. This is around the time where Bob Iger said that Song of the South will never be on Disney+. Plus. And Spurb says, I think if anyone else in Hollywood had made that movie, it would have been almost completely forgotten about by today, except for only the most hardcore animation history buffs who would note in passing its role in helping to shape the possibilities of hybrid animation. And I think that is extremely on point. And one of the things that he writes about extensively in his book is the way that Disney as a company 
I think the thing that they're best at, and you can frame this in multiple ways in terms of depending on how you feel about it, and you're allowed to feel different ways about it depending on what it actually what they're actually doing, but whether you call it sort of honoring or preserving their own legacy, or whether you call it remarketing their own previously made products to successive generations as an act of brand preservation, however you want to characterize it, Disney is like no other company in terms of being able to draw upon their their pre-existing material and repackage it over and over again. You know, we've talked on several of the previous episodes about the theatrical re-release strategy that they employed prior to the existence of home video. It did fairly poorly to modestly okay in its initial theatrical run in 1946. And then it was subsequently re-released in 1956, 1972, 1980, and 1986. And I think it's very telling that it was released not at all during the 60s and then twice during the Reagan administration. And I think those years just tell you so much about how this movie even has a legacy today. Because 1986, that's the year I was born. So it literally was not really possible for me to see Song of the South in the theater. I don't remember offhand how widely the VHS was available. It's certainly not one that we own. Like I said, my only real exposure was the sing-along tapes, whereas Zippity-Doo-Dah, I believe, was like the opening song. But so the, the people who are passionate about like oh i saw song of the south when i was a little kid in the theater and i just loved it and everything they're all generation x which is a more conservative generation than my generation or yours megan overall and so i think you can see where disney has sort of cultivated this legacy and i think very adeptly rode the political waves of um the feelings of white people over the past 50 years let's say or 60 years in terms of timing when they actually brought Song of the South back out from the Disney vault. The legacy as a whole is is very complicated, but the re-releases specifically, Jason Spurb does a great job talking about it. Karina Longworth does a fantastic job in her You Must Remember This podcast with the, the six-episode discussion on the film. It was repeatedly released in times when they thought that white people would essentially want a more docile view of the Black population. For instance, according to the Los Angeles Times, the film was expected to make more than $7 million in 1972, which made it the highest grossing Disney reissue. This is a movie that, again, was racist when it first came out, was not that good of a movie, and yet ended up being one of Disney's biggest reissues at that point in time. Why would that happen? Well, according to many of the sources, it's because this was a period of history that was known as white backlash, which was essentially after civil rights, white politicians, white speakers wanted to kind of suggest that, okay, well, we'll admit the past was bad. Okay, slavery wasn't good, but now we've gone too far. It was this period, and I think that we very much saw a similar period after Barack Obama was elected president, where there was kind of this idea that we've done enough. We fixed racism, and in fact, we went so far that white people are now the oppressed race. And in that situation, white people, in many cases, wanted to feel empowered again. And this kind of movie shows the white people in power. Whether they're making the right decisions or the wrong decisions, 
whether they're portrayed as the heroes or the villains, white people are unquestionably in power. And the black people are outright saying they prefer it that way. Very obvious why that thrived when it did. And just a reminder, in 1972, Richard Nixon won re-election with 49 out of 50 states going his way. So again, it just is sort of credit to Disney for reading those tea leaves as well as they did. But again, I think it just further is further damning evidence about the whole endeavor. But another thing that Spur points out really well in the last section of his book is that while the movie Song of the South has only been intermittently available and not really available at all in the last 40 years, the characters from it have never really gone away. So there was a Sunday comic strip, as was seemingly customary of Disney, that was launched in October of 1945, a year before the film was released. That was Uncle Remus and His Tales of Br'er Rabbit. Unlike other comic strip sort of adaptations or retellings, this comic strip lasted 30 years and was finally discontinued in 1972 after that re-release. In 1946, a giant golden book titled Walt Disney's Uncle Remus Stories was published by Simon & Schuster, which is a, uh, that title is, has a, there's a lot to unpack in Walt mm-hmm. Disney's Uncle Remus stories, but it had 12, 23 illustrated stories of Bear Rabbit's escapades, all told in the linguistic or verbal blackface mega that you referred to earlier, which was the style of Joel Chandler Harris himself. In 1986, Floyd Norman wrote A Zippity Doo Dot Christmas featuring Uncle Remus and Bear Rabbit in that year's Disney Christmas Story newspaper comic strip. When those strips were reprinted in a 2017 collection, the story was Omission, which was the only one not included in that re-release. Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Bear also appeared in the 2011 video game Connect Disneyland Adventures for Xbox 360, likely connected to Splash Mountain, which we'll talk about in a minute or two. Those characters also appeared as Tar Baby appear in Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the background. They also appeared in some episodes of House of Mouse, which as we talked about in an earlier episode, maybe that's why that's not on Disney+. Plus. They also appeared in Mickey's Magical Christmas, snowed in at the House of Mouse, which was a Christmas special from that show. So yeah, th- these characters have never really gone away, like, like we, we talked about with Zippity Doodah, which we'll talk about again. There's been a concerted effort by Disney to sort of break out the animated characters from the rest of the movie, I think especially since 1986. I think it's definitely up for debate how successful and how possible that that really actually is. Despite the fact that those characters are extremely prevalent, even up till today, and despite the fact that there's actually some critical reasons for why the film could be held up. For instance, James Baskett was the first Black man to win an Oscar. Patty McDaniel was the first Black woman for Gone with the Wind, not this film. Song of the South won an Academy Award for Best Song with Zippity Doodah. Basket had a special Oscar from the Academy for his, quote, able and heartwarming characterization of Uncle Remus. Disney has made very clear that this is not something that they particularly want to hold on to. In 2020, Bob Iger announced that Song of the South would never be released on Disney+. Plus. But there has been some pushback on that, even within perhaps surprising sources. In 2017, Whoopi Goldberg, who had just been inaugurated as a Disney legend, wanted the film to be re-released publicly and explained, quote, I'm trying to find a way to get people to start having conversations about bringing Song of the South back so we can talk about what it was and where it came from 
and why it came out. And I think that one of the interesting things there is we can have that conversation without giving Disney a bunch of money by re-releasing a racist movie. And I think that that's kind of that balance that has to be made in praising the good elements of it, the conservation of some of the stories that might have otherwise been lost in bringing Black talent to the screams, to the screens and to the Oscars without having to actively say, hey, instead of honoring the work that is being done in the modern day, or even the work that had been done in the race films, let's bring back a racist film to talk about why there was a racist film. I think there's just a lot of kind of complexity to the question of whether the film should be available or not, because there are other ways to acknowledge it without re-releasing it. I think the window has sort of passed a little bit. And, and this is this is my own personal view because Roger Ebert was also in favor of giving the film some kind of availability. He talks specifically that it's not a movie that necessarily it should be widely available for kids. I think he was talking about on tape or DVD at the time. You know, it shouldn't be on the shelf, your local Best Buy or Target where some person can, you know, some person who isn't aware of it can just pick it up and bring it home and be like, oh, hey, kids, there's a, there's a fun Disney movie we haven't seen. It should be more widely available for people who are interested in the history of culture and cinema specifically and animation. I do think there were avenues to make it available. To me personally, I, I think it should be available in some capacity, whether it's a release just through Disney's own exclusive the Disney Movie Club, where they do exclusive like disc releases of some of their movies, like we talked about with uh, Make My Music last week, or they license it to like the Criterion Collection, which could put together a really nice package that gives a lot of this historical context that we're talking about, you know, in terms of special features and introductions and all that kind of thing. I think the combination of the rise of social media and then specifically this whole like they certainly can't do anything until this Ron DeSantis thing blows over. But I think in a pre-social media age, they could have made it quietly available. But I think that Disney somehow even has more cultural omnipresence than they did 20 years ago. And I think that releasing it now, it would just be endless Twitter discourse about the release of it. With a lot of people not actually watching it or even engaging with the film directly. But like Disney re-releases racist movie, I think it's just too tantalizing of a social media storm for anybody to to back off. Whereas before it would have been like a couple of newspaper articles and some columns and like it, it would have been a much, much easier for Disney to contain and potentially control that narrative or at least not be hurt by it. But I think the idea of like Fox News talking about Song of the South every day for like three months is just an exhausting proposition. And so, like I said, I feel like through no one in particular's fault, I feel like the window for actually releasing it without drawing attention to it, but releasing it with the intent of being like, this is part of our history. We have to sort of deal with this a little bit. We want to make it available so that people understand the context of it. Maybe, like I said, maybe has probably passed. And I don't know that anybody directly at Disney would do a good enough job to say like, this movie was regressive for its time. I think at best we would get the like, it's it, this movie contains outdated cultural depictions. And not mention that they were outdated in 1946, not just 2023. I think that one of the other things that should be considered as we talk about a potential re-release or availability is where is the money going? 
Disney is a company that is very good at making their own money, especially at making money without having to make new products. Walt might not have been good with money, but they certainly have people who have figured it out now. And so one of the things that we'll be seeing, especially in the next two decades with Song of the South, is the question of can it go into the public domain and is it better or worse for it to do so? So as we've talked about a few other times, when beloved classics go into the public domain, we get wonderful things like Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. And so when we get something like Song of the South that is not a beloved classic, but is kind of this mythic film coming into the public domain, which is expected to happen in 2041, it becomes a question of what can be done with it and should it. Do we want Disney to hold control over it so that they can make sure it doesn't get used for worse purposes? Maybe, but then they're the only ones making money off of it. Do we want it released into the public domain so that the people who actually have a heritage in these folklore traditions are able to grapple with their own folklore? Maybe that's the way to do it. I certainly don't have an answer, but I know that as we approach that period where it goes into the public domain, we're going to definitely see a lot of questions about what happens to the rights of this film and how that can be used to help or to hurt the populations that the film has been arguably harming for the last 80 years. I mean, I for one would be very interested to see people of African descent or from the African diaspora reclaim or reinterpret the Uncle Remus stories at the very least, whether or not they're at all related to the Disney versions or just a reinterpretation of those folktales that may exist already. I am not aware of it if it does, but that's something I would certainly be interested in engaging with. And the other point about keeping it sort of, you know, tucked away is that I feel like the less people that see Song of the South, the more likely is the only people who do see it are the people who, besides the aforementioned, and I would count us in this category, hardcore animation nerds who really like digging into this stuff. The only other people who would see it are the people who are going to ardently defend it. And I think that also adds the sort of mythic status of it. You know, it, it's the forbidden fruit of Disney in, in some ways, which is also part of why I wanted to cover it for this project, because I wanted to make sure that we kind of brought it into the light a little bit to just show that, like, you know, really engage with with this movie and the context around it. The other major part of its legacy, of course, is Splash Mountain. We're actually recording this as uh, the same week that the one in Disneyland has closed. So two of the three Splash Mountains are no longer operating as Splash Mountain. But the ride was conceived in 1983 by legendary Disney Imagineer Tony Baxter, uh, who is, I mean, he is just a great designer outside of Splash Mountain necessarily. But there was an effort to get more foot traffic in the land called Bear Country in Disneyland. Uh, it was originally called the Zippity River Run. Legend has it that CEO Michael Eisner changed the name to Splash Mountain to help promote the 1984 Tom Hanks movie Splash. Even though the ride has somewhat little to do with Song of the South in the end and even less to do with Splash. There are no mermaids on the, on the ride. After being delayed and going way over budget, it finally opened in Disneyland in 1989 and then in Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland in 1992. As of this recording, only the one in Tokyo is still operating. The ride itself, which I read, I wrote as a kid when I was in Disney World. When I was in Disney World last year, it was closed for refurbishment. 
And then when I was also in Disneyland last year, it was just too cold to ride a water ride. And so I've not ridden Splash Mountain since 1996, I think. It's not my favorite kind of ride to begin with. But anyway, uh, the ride itself omits Uncle Remus entirely. There's some allusions to some of his phrases on signage in like the line and, and on the ride. But he as a character does not appear. And it's sort of replaced as a journey through a cartoon bayou filled with animal characters. The Tar Baby scene is in the ride, but the Tar Baby is replaced with honey as a way to trap Br'er Rabbit. And so, you know, it's a very detailed ride. I think in terms of theming, it works really well. I don't think that you've ridden it, Megan, but I did send you a ride-through video, so I'll ask your thoughts if you got a chance to watch that in a minute. But I think nobody really gave much thought to Splash Mountain other than being like, oh, it's really weird that Disney's based a whole ride on a movie that they won't let anybody watch. Amid the George Floyd protests in 2020, Disney announced that they would retool the ride in Disneyland and Magic Kingdom to remove the Song of the South elements and replace them with a concept based on Princess and the Frog, which just is a much better movie anyway. They began development on it in 2019. Uh, they didn't really give a timeline. They had discussed retheming it for at least five years before landing on really going after the Princess and the Frog theme as a replacement. In July of last year, Disney announced that the new ride will be called Tiana's Bio Adventure and will open in both parks late 2024. Uh, the Magic Kingdom version of Splash Mountain closed uh, January of this year. The Disneyland one closed, like I said, this, this week as of recording, the very end of May 2023. Tokyo Disneyland is operated by the Oriental Land Company, which actually licenses all the stuff from Disney and puts their own money into the parks. And so they have said that they're sort of still deciding what to do about Splash Mountain. And there's a whole thing about the Japanese understanding of the very specific United States racial thing. Like, there's there's a bunch of other complications there. But I think my hunch is that they're going to see how the Princess and the Frog version is received and then make a decision uh, as to what they're going to do about their version. But I... Watched a 4K on-ride video on YouTube from the final day of Splash Mountain at Disneyland, and I shared it with Megan because, I, like I said, I don't believe she's ever ridden the ride. I just wanted to get her quick thoughts about it. I feel like I might have ridden it when I was very little. I honestly don't remember. I think that, for me, what's notable is that most of the Disney rides are just rides that have Disney things splashed onto them them. I don't think that we're going to really see any change to the ride experience except, you know, change out scenes from one movie to the other, change out a tiny bit of the theming. I think that it, it's really kind of just an aesthetic band-aid that they're going to put on this to just kind of take the same exact mechanical experience. I'm not sure it really does anything other than saying like, hey, look, we, we changed the name and we changed, you know, a couple of walls and, and images. I think most people know those characters from the ride more than they know them from the movie directly, which I think is interesting. And I think the whole conception of the ride and the way that they're just focusing on the cartoon characters and the songs, I think shows that even as far back as at least 1983, Disney was very cognizant of the issues with the movie itself. But I, I certainly agree with you about the changeover. I think, perhaps ironically, a log flume ride suits Princess and the Frog's New Orleans Bayou setting better than it does Song of the South. Because I, 
there's a scene where Johnny is on a little, like a little tiny rowboat. And I was like, oh, there is actually some water in, <laughs> in this movie. But I do think the, you know, the New Orleans of it all really actually makes, it'll make the ride make more sense because there isn't really anything resembling, there's a waterfall in Song of the South. It's not like there's a big scene where Br'er Rabbit jumps off a waterfall or something. And there's not, water's not really a main element of the movie whatsoever. So in some ways, I think it'll just make make more sense, you know, at least give characters from a better movie more prominence in the parks. But ultimately, I, I agree with you. I don't think they're going to change the mechanical nature of the ride much, if at all. And it's really just about redressing a bunch of the robots and adding different music, which, you know, they I think they just put a YouTube short out on like the official Disney channel about some of the music that they're going to include in the new version. So I'm excited for that, but I, I agree with you that as a ride, the good parts of it, which is like, it's a good theme park ride, will remain the same, and then, you know, the rest is sort of dressing over that. And then with zippity doo which again is the other really prominent part of the legacy, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for the song, and the song is itself nostalgic. It sort of represents an idealized version of plantation culture. There's also what... Spurb calls effective nostalgia, which is personal recollections of the film itself and the era that it was experienced during, which also tie into the themes of the song. And then the manufactured nostalgia of, again, as we've been talking about, Disney sort of picking and choosing and how to release parts of Song of the South and keep it alive so they can keep using zippity doo which I feel like they've finally given up on within the last 20 years. That They've really cut back on leading with zippity doo and it doesn't show up as much. Over its history, it has been covered by both Black and white artists, including Louis Armstrong, the Jackson 5, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, which is a, a Phil Spector group in the 60s. So, like, it is interesting, again, as we talk about, this is certainly a conversation that you and I are not equipped to have, but I do find it interesting the number of Black artists who have covered the song and... I would love to learn more about like, you know, what they thought of it at the time or how they reacted to it, whether they were like, oh, it's a popular Disney song. And yet, like, maybe it connects to these things, but like, whatever. Or if we've actually learned more about that song through research more recently and they weren't aware at the time, there's there's more to that story, I'm sure, than we're able to cover. I did also want to highlight the quote unquote rap version that they did in the 80s to promote Splash Mountain, which is one of the more ridiculous videos I think I've ever seen from the Disney Corporation. It's like two minutes long and it's a bunch of mostly white people with some people of color. Imagine like a rap that would be performed in front of an elementary school audience in the early 90s. Uh, when I say rap, that's that's the kind of quote unquote rap I mean. And it is, it's like Broadway rap, I guess, which kind of makes sense from the Disney Park perspective. It's just one of those artifacts of like 80s Disney that it's just like, how how did this happen? <laughs> who, 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 who signed off? Who thought this was a good idea? That's always the question for me. Just how many people did this have to get approved by before it was able to like make it out into big culture and uh, and for us to see it and go, really? That that was what you went with? That that was that was how you decided to do this? <laughs> Choices were made, is I guess, is I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say. And then the other artifact that we definitely wanted to talk about a little bit more was the Saturday Night Live TV Funhouse 
animated segment, Journey to the Disney Vault, which is one of those things that, again, like early internet culture was like a thing, like, because it only aired once on Saturday Night Live. It was never re- repeated, but it was like viral before viral was a thing where it really was like past, per- like somebody would be like, oh my God, you have to watch this thing. And we'd like find it on a tour site or then on YouTube or whatever. I had seen it before, but not in many years. You could tell it was made by people who really understood all the things that we're talking about and all the things we have been talking about on this podcast with the things that they reference. So I wasn't sure if that was something you had seen before or not. I don't think I had seen it before. I did come across it a couple of times while I was researching this. I like that it kind of draws into this, you know, the concept of the vault that we've talked about so much and how Disney so zealous in guarding its properties and in re-releasing them at just the right time that it then kind of becomes this metaphor for all of the secrets that Disney is keeping whether that is actually Walt's frozen head or whether that is a very real very racist movies that they put out I think that it's it's kind of interesting that what was intended as a marketing strategy of enforced scarcity has turned into kind of a a representation of Disney's darker side. I think it's it's very good satire personally and it's it's satire in the sense of it's not parody it is actually like it's telling truths in among its sort of ridiculous commentary about like Bambi 2000. I overall enjoy it. I I think it's very it's the right kind of uncomfortable watch in terms of especially TV funhouse skits. <laughs> There was one more thing with respect to legacy that I wanted to kind of talk about before we get into the question of has Disney fixed their mistakes? Have they registered kind of what they've done? And so one of the things that I just wanted to briefly bring up is I haven't seen this film, but it might be interesting. It's not a Disney movie, but it is kind of connected to this whole controversy in 2006 Universal actually put out The Adventures of Br'er Rabbit, nearly all black cast. Br'er Rabbit is voiced by Nick Cannon. Other major actors include Wayne Brady, Danny Glover, D.L. Hewley, Phil Lamar, Wanda Sykes. I mean, they were focused on making sure that with this interpretation, they actually include black actors and they play with the idea of how hip hop has influences on it. And while this isn't necessarily inspired by Disney, I think this might kind of be the answer to how should this be handled. While it's still going off of the controversial source material, there maybe is value in these stories, that there are important things that need to be shared, but that there are communities that are equipped to share those stories and communities that aren't. And I think that it does, admittedly, not having seen the film, but from what I've read about it, I think it does a much better job in kind of managing the legacy of the source material without having to bundle up all the legacy of the movie and the Disney Corporation and Walt Disney's stubbornness towards ever being told that he was wrong. That is kind of hard for Disney's interpretation and Song of the South to ever really escape. Yeah, it looks interesting. I can see it's available for digital rental pretty cheaply. So I I may check it out at some point just to satisfy my own curiosity about how this is all handled. 
But yeah, moving in into kind of our, our last sections around has Disney fixed their mistakes, I think is a very good question to ask. It is still one of the only movies that Disney's point out with a black lead. There's also has been pointed out the trend of Disney movies to not show black characters in human form for extended periods of time, which was a controversy, especially around uh, Pixar's Soul, which was their first movie with a black lead. And I think these are all interesting. Like, again, Soul is a movie I like very much, but that doesn't necess- that doesn't mean that those criticisms aren't valid. Like, it can still be a movie that you enjoy. And also it's worth thinking about these questions in the term in the way that people are being depicted and represented on screen. You know, we're recording this right after the live action Little Mermaid has come out and Ariel is played by a black actress. They're certainly making an effort. And I'm not going to say that it's enough or when it would be enough. I think the fact that an effort is being made is its own form of, of progress, at least from where we sit right now. And it's it's always going to be too fast for some people and not fast enough for others, which I'm certainly sympathetic to it not being fast enough. But I do think that there is at least an effort being made, even if that effort sometimes is cl- clumsy and backfires on itself. We definitely can see progress. I know that there have been a lot of really interesting studies that have looked into essentially how much different demographics actually speak in their movies. For instance, there has been a lot of discussion of the fact that Disney princesses in their own movies are not often the most dominant speakers. Sleeping Beauty, I believe, is the biggest failure in that regard. But even in the films that we see as as really kind of progressive, a lot of the time we see that male characters are speaking more than female characters. And I would be interested in seeing that as Disney kind of progresses, how often does that still remain a trend where we see that Black characters, even as they're put into more dominant roles, more nuanced roles, do they still ever get the amount of speaking time as they got in Song of the South? Because if Song of the South still has more spoken words than any of the modern films, which is certainly possible, I would say, that's certainly something that should be considered. I specifically been thinking about this in love the every single word series by dylan Marin, which is a series of videos that show every single word spoken by black characters in popular films it's a really great way to see the major problems still very present in modern filmmaking a lot of times either show there's like one or two lines by black characters or even show hey here's this movie that we're heralding as like this amazing wonderful movie how often do black characters speak Oh, none? Okay, let's talk about that. And I would be very interested in seeing how a study or a a video like that could be done with these more modern interpretations with Black leads to show if they even get to the level of on-screen discussion as they did in this movie in the 40s that we have said many times is not, not a good representation. I will at least confirm that Ariel does still lose her voice for a good chunk of the movie. So that's probably not helping matters, but that is at least that is a problem, hopefully unique to the little mermaid and Disney's version of it rather than, than, than the larger systemic issues. But it is, but it is one of those things where, you know, and there's a couple other examples from that movie in particular, 
there are some downsides with with race blind casting if you're not being super careful about the implications of casting people of color in certain roles especially in this live action little mermaid they're trying to make it a very like non-colonial world that this takes place in but they don't really explain enough like there's still it was one of those things that like they were trying to to not talk about it by a by casting their way out of it and it just made me have more questions (laughs) so it's not a perfect system and there's certainly a lot more progress to be made on a lot of different fronts but at least the effort can be appreciated and acknowledged whether and then the success can be judged on those individual choices i think one other thing that i just wanted to discuss on this same subject is there's an article by McKinsey that is called Black Representation in Film and TV, The Challenges and Impact of Increasing Diversity, which just does a really great job discussing current problems with race and representation in entertainment, specifically looking into, for instance, what percentage of people of color are in the entertainment industry and how do they get dispersed on different films. For instance, if the director, lead screenwriter, or executive producer are not Black, there are often very few, if any, Black actors being cast in it, which puts an undue burden on Black filmmakers. Black actors is a major breakdown in what kinds of roles Black actors are available for. And this is something that's just been discussed many times in many ways, comes into kind of this idea that Not only do we need more representation, but we need more thoughtful representation. Going into those issues that we already discussed, what does it say when a white woman takes a black woman's voice for the vast majority of this new live action film? How does all of that play out? I think these are questions that once again, I am not equipped to answer necessarily, but I think that the start to answering them is by hiring Black people and people of color earlier and in more influential roles. Don't do the Disney strategy from Song of the South of when Black people tell you things you don't want to hear, firing them. Try bringing them in more. I think that Disney is definitely trying. I think that they are making good steps. But I think that a lot of times if we go into those rooms, what we're going to see is that it's still a vast, vast majority white through a white you know director or writing team and to that end i am very excited for the for tiana the princess and the frog sequel animated series that is being written and directed by stella Mekki, who if that makes her the first black director to helm a walt disney animation studios project of any kind and it she's seems to be really in charge of developing what that series is actually going to be like and hopefully will sort of be a corrective like princess and the frog is a movie i really like but i certainly acknowledge the issue of her being a frog for most of that movie and so i'm hoping the animated series gives her that much more screen time as a human person i'm really looking forward to that supposedly it'll be out sometime next year but we shall see but in terms of our takes and overall closing thoughts on this. I haven't been hiding my opinion about this at all. I find Song of the South to be both racist and boring. So my opinion has really not changed since I watched it, you know, 15 plus years ago. There's some good animation on a technical level, but it doesn't feel anything particularly innovative or special. And so there's nothing so good here that I feel like it needs to be seen other than as an artifact 
of Disney's history and the history of black representation in cinema. Like, it, you know, unless you are doing sort of research, whether on your own for just a personal enrichment project or some sort of, you know, academic or, or larger work that you're engaging with this material on. It's not a movie that's good enough for me to say, like, yes, it's extremely racist, but there's there's nothing after the but. There's just nothing mm-hmm. good enough about this movie for me to say, like, you should really seek out Song of the South and watch it if you haven't. There are other films that do it better. There are films that are created by Black filmmakers, or at least with an all-Black cast, that can do it better. I think that you should, and I'm certainly intending to, you should definitely check out that Universal film, The Adventures of Br'er Rabbit. If you want to see what was going on in 1940s film regarding the representation of Black people, don't choose what was notably a racist film at the time. Choose something like Stormy Weather or specifically really any film by Oscar Michau that is still available to us. We should be pushing for these views that really do show the history, that do show the technology, that do show the folklore and the mythology and all of these wonderful cultural elements in any movie other than the boring and racist Song of the South. And I think that's kind of my big take on it. And are certainly less racist. I'm not going to say not at all racist, as we've demonstrated over the past few episodes, over the past history of this podcast so far, but certainly less racist or less pervasively racist. That's probably that's probably a better way to say that. I fully admit that I may not see all of the issues with every movie, but I think that there are certainly movies out there that do the same thing better. Just that's that's all it boils down to for me. I just think that we can see technology better in other films. We can see the folklore better in other films. And and so the long and short of it is, yes, this is the secret hidden Disney movie. But the fact is, it's as much for the fact that it's not a good movie as it is anything else. Just watch something better. There are so many other recommendations. We have a lot of sources here on what, if you're obsessed with Song of the South, what was going on behind the scenes. We've also listed several sources for other things to watch. And I think that's a good place to take from this. I completely agree with everything you said. And I I don't have anything more to say on the subject. So if you want to take us out, uh, go right ahead. I hope that we did a pretty good job with this subject. Next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we will continue this series with something that is far easier to watch both because of the fairy tale fun nature of it and because it's actually on Disney+. Plus. So join our climb up the beanstalk with fun and fancy free. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela.